The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Mr. Mick McDowell. He is an award-winning wine producer, and he and his wife, Loretta, operate one of the top five volume wineries in the Great Plains state of Nebraska. His winery is called Maletta Vista. The winery also includes a restaurant and event space. It sits on the edge of hill country just north of St. Paul, Nebraska. Mr. McDowell received both his bachelor's and master's degrees in agriculture education from the University of Nebraska, and he was employed with the University of Nebraska's Cooperative Extension Service in the 1980s. He has twice served as president of the State Wineries and Grape Growers Association, and served on the Herbicide Protocol Committee and has taught herbicide damage leaf indexing techniques to Nebraska grape growers and served on the SAFE team while employed with the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. I tasted his wine at a Sandhill Crane migration event in March, and I wanted to know more about the challenges of wine production in a state that is largely known for corn, beef, and corn ethanol production. Nebraska is the third largest corn-producing state, and about one-third of that corn goes on to produce corn ethanol. So welcome, Mick. It's wonderful to have you with me. Melinda, it's great to be with you. Well, I am so interested in wine production in states that traditionally grow commodity crops because of the relationship between the new herbicide sprays and drift damage to what we call specialty crops. And that, of course, includes organic crops. It includes fruits and vegetables, including grapes. So before we dive into that, why don't you tell me how you went from ag education and a good career in extension to being involved in wine production? (laughs) That's a a really good question. I grew up on a farm, loved Uh, every aspect of it, and of course was involved in the 4-H program, and that was my step into the university or introduction into the university's extension program. So was recruited by my county extension agent and went on to get a master's degree and then uh, started with the university in about 1982. Uh, Left the area of central Nebraska, went to southeast Nebraska for a little while, and it wasn't nearly as good of a fit. Where we're at in the very center of the United States, we're in the heart of irrigation country. And as you move further east, that changes, and water availability is a lot less uh, so than it was where I grew up. So I eventually started doing farm and ranch management, started doing real estate sales, real estate appraisals. And uh, I think that entrepreneurial spirit (laughs) that grabs hold of some of us you know, had grabbed a hold of me, and um, I, it took me a little while to convince Loretta, my wife, that uh, doing a winery and uh, would be something that we uh, would thrive at, but eventually uh, we did, and so we did real estate and uh, grape growing, and then in 2007, we built our winery and 
opened our winery in 2007, and uh, the rest is kind of a history. Right. Well, when I saw your representative at, there was a nature center where there was, your wine was being served. And when I spoke with that representative, I said, do you have any drift damage? And his response was, yeah, we lose about 25% of our crop every year. And that made me wonder how wine production can be economically viable with that kind of loss. So that's why I wanted to talk to you right away. Of course, I love wine. I think that a good wine goes beautifully with a meal. And your particular vineyard is absolutely gorgeous. And I'll provide a link to your winery for our guests to go and take a look at it. And we should probably let our listeners know where Nebraska is. So you're surrounded by, you're right in the heart of the Great Plains. And you've got Iowa, Missouri, Kansas, Colorado, Wyoming, and South Dakota around you. What is it like there? It's a slice of heaven. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. I mean, we have, it's a land where people are friendly, where they're still the salt of the earth. And we have such diversity in our state from along the Platte River Road, which was how the settlers traveled from St. Louis to California, Oregon, and the West Coast for many years. And that's one of the flattest areas, very good farmland in that stretch for about two, 250 miles. And then as you get into the Sand Hill region, we still have some of the largest sand grass pasture area that's 32 million acres and so cows is the uh, primary source of revenue and livelihood in that part of the state and it's not flat it's very rolling very diverse and then you get up along the north edge of nebraska you have the niobrara river which is a scenic byway and extremely beautiful place for anybody to come visit. And there is a wine trail. I think it's the outlaw trail that runs along there, and that has some outlaw history. And then if you go into southwest Nebraska, which butts up against Colorado and and Kansas areas, you'll run into, again, the hill country of Nebraska. So Nebraska is a very diverse state. And moisture-wise, you know, we'll run 32 inches of rainfall or moisture on the eastern third of Nebraska. Then you get to our area, and we're looking at probably at about 20 to 22 inches of moisture, total moisture for the year. And then you go west of here into the sand hills, and you're looking at anywhere from 10 to 15 inches of moisture per year. So mm. diversity across Nebraska. And, of course, as you go west, you gain elevation. Our winery sets 350 feet above the river. And we're at 1950, and the river here is at 1,650 feet. Hmm. So it's just a beautiful state. Well, you specialize in cold-temperature grapes, obviously, and you've beaten out California wines in quality. Yes. In 2012, it was an exceptional year for us quality-wise and and award-wise. We actually won best to show white wine in Sonoma, California, of all places. You go out to California and you win the best of show white wine. Now that beats out Fumé Blancs, Chardonnays, Chenin Blancs, Sauvignon Blancs, everything. And we we did it with a Brianna. It was an off-dry Brianna. 
And that was a very, <laughs> it was kind of our trial of Paris, per se. And if you've ever seen the movie Bottle Shock, you'll understand what the trial of Paris is. But that was exceptional. I mean, people out there were saying, what? you know, they, they couldn't believe somebody from Nebraska had beat California, all the California wines with, with a Nebraska wine. But right. Nebraska has probably 12 best of shows in the last 15 years. Yeah. So we are doing some really nice things. You are. And I want that to continue, obviously. I think every local region should have the ability to produce these kinds of crops. But I am concerned about the loss of 25% of your crop. Tell me how that happens and what's really going on there. Yeah, we do receive herbicide damage every spring. And our most critical point is when we have pollination going on. And so a lot of grapes have a very small flower. They're very sensitive to either 2,4-D or dicambas. And dicamba takes a lot of different forms nowadays, whether it's the original banvils or the encapsulated versions, but they still have volatility. And that vapor will come into our winery and into our vineyards unseen. We'll notice the damage on the leaves first but as we examine our grape clusters is when we start to see berries that will never develop. And part of that is because the herbicide has damaged that plant at that point in time. So we'll, we have a grape that Edelweiss, we've also won a best to show with Edelweiss in Florida, and we have approximately 1,200 plants, and I know... Sometimes we've received anywhere from 40 to 60% crop loss wow. due to pollination problems. That's and a shame. It is. Do it you is. have any way of being compensated for that loss? You could always resort to a lawsuit, but if anybody has ever looked into that, you understand that the threshold has to be at least at $50,000 or more to be compensated. And then you have to prove the source. And let's say 2,4-D ester is such a widely used herbicide that it could be a homeowner, could be a neighbor, could be a weed district, could be county, could be state. And actually, I think I think all of those sources have, have damaged us from one point or the other. But uh, even, and as you probably have touched with other guests on your show, even when you turn claims into the State Department of Agriculture, they have to come out and do an inspection and first identify that you were damaged. And, of course, everyone can have damage, but was it at an economic threshold level? Mm. We did have such an instance. We turned it into the state. The state did come out. They did inspect, and they did find that there was weed control measure along a canal and they at least had violated some of their application rates. I think they applied it on a day that it was too windy. Right. But, you know, as we've talked, 240 ester is so volatile, and so it's old chemistry. It was developed and released in 1945, became very abundant in 1946. And, you know, even Washington State, where they have a thriving wine industry. I think they're number two in the in the country as far as total um, wines produced. And they showed that 240 ester would travel on the winds anywhere from 20 to 50 miles. 
So tracking down that source is extremely challenging. Exactly. Yeah, and I remember, of course, this was in March when I was visiting for the Sandhill Crane Migration, but the wind speed when I was there was in the 30-mile-per-hour range. Mm -hmm. It it was remarkably windy. And I thought, gosh, how does anybody produce any specialty crops if anybody's spraying herbicides? And I'm assuming that those herbicides are being sprayed predominantly on corn. Is it corn and soy? Yes, and then we also have the pleasure of having pastures around us, and we own a pasture as well. And there's a weed that is called musk thistle, or there's like four noxious weeds, four thistles that are noxious weeds. So even in the spring, you're spraying your pastures, and 40% of our county are pastures. And you're going to catch it really from all sides. So it it comes to a point from my perspective that, you have two or three options, and there's maybe more than that. But one is you just kind of say it's an unsafe technology that needs to go away, and the herbicide needs to no longer be used, or you need to put stronger regulations, or you need to have encapsulations that prevent it from volatilizing. Mm -hmm. And um, that's some of the new technology they've come out with on the banvils. And the uh, dicambus is what is commonly referred to. Yeah. Okay, Mick, let me just take a quick break because we're already halfway through. And I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Mr. Mick McDowell. And he's an award-winning wine producer in the Great Plains state of Nebraska. And we are talking about the challenges of grape production, wine production, when you are surrounded by commodity crops that receive sprays. So in addition to the 2,4-D and dicamba affecting the crops themselves, you had also mentioned in an earlier conversation that these toxins essentially affect our bees or our pollinators. How does that affect your grape production? The flowers on grapes are so tiny that they are really unattractive to the pollinators. So not having the pollinators around is neither a hindrance nor an advantage for those that are producing grapes. So you don't need bees in order to have wine? No, we need. We actually need a two to four mile an hour wind and just a slight breeze so that you can get transfer of pollen from the pistils to the stamens via wind. I see. Okay. All right. Now tell me, one of the ways that I've been taught by farmers to reduce the risk of drift depositing on crops is to have buffers. So you might have a tall stand of trees, for example. Are you able to do that on your farm? Well, in our particular location, we're located at the top of a hill. So we catch wind all the time. So Buffer zones are um, not possible, really, where we are. We do have some trees that will block some winds, but the other danger that you have, if you have a lot of area that is protected by trees, is things can get it trapped in behind that dead still area and just hang there. And if you've got pesticide vapors or herbicide vapors, it can almost be more detrimental. Mm-hmm. Are you a member of Driftwatch, and can you explain a little bit about how Driftwatch programs help specialty crop producers? Yes, uh, we are a member of Driftwatch. Our association 
cooperated with the state of Nebraska, and I can't remember if there's like 14 states that are member states. So anyone who has a sensitive crop or a specialty crop has the ability to go on a Drift Watch website in their states. You can put in your location. It'll bring up a aerial map. You can diagram it. You can mark it off. And then anyone that is spraying in your area has a responsibility to check out what is surrounding the location that they intend to spray and whether they're sensitive crop, whether it's grapes, bees, pollinators, organics. So then they check the website, they identify it, they check wind speeds and directions, and then they either choose to apply that day or wait for a different, more favorable day. Okay. What other protections do you have available to you? You had mentioned there are several options. I'm assuming maybe you just grow extra crop to cover your losses or, you know, what are your challenges and how do you face them? That really is our option, I guess, is to to make sure that we purchase enough pounds of grapes to meet the the demand need that we see uh, moving forward. And there are probably about 60 growers across Nebraska. Once we do notice herbicide damage on leaves, and that's part of the leaf indexing program, you go in every week, you go to the same plant, you identify the same shoot, and you look and see what new shoots are coming out. So you're within seven days of identifying when herbicide damage has occurred. So we have some fertilizers, we have some seaweed derivatives that we can spray on, and they break down chemicals quickly. And so we can spray if we know that we've been hit. We can spray uh, with some of those um, derivatives and uh, help speed up the process. We can add water to the plant so then the water makes sure that the, the plant can grow through that quickly and not retain it, kind of flush it out of its system. And that's about all we've got available right now. Yeah. I'm interested in leaf indexing. What exactly is that? Well, it is a process, like I said, you go to the same plant and the same vine or the same shoot, and on that shoot, what you'll do is, so if I go out today, I say, okay, no bud break. Tomorrow, bud break, and then one week later, then I say there's two leaves that have emerged. Uh, Identify which ones they are, and I say, is there any herbicide damage? And we say yes or no. And then there's a scale of zero to five, and we rate it. So if there is, let's say, first week, no damage. Second week, we go and there's three more leaves, so we have five now. So first week we had two, now we have five. We look at those, Are there is there any damage on those leaves? And then we identify it from zero to five if there is damage, and then we mark that on there. So when we have a catastrophic event and we see a four or a five, we know that we had significant damage occur, and it usually only happens to the new leaves. So then we take an indexing of those each week. We can mitigate accordingly. We can tell the state of Nebraska Department of Ag when we file a complaint the time that it happened within seven days. They can check the records around, and they can see who applied and if there was any violations that occurred. And then if there was, then we would have the option, I guess, of pursuing 
that. But it's, again, when you're in the middle of corn country, it's a very challenging journey. Legally. It really is. Well, and I also was looking at the economic, the big money makers. What's the biggest economic driver agriculturally in the state? And without a doubt, it's corn mm-hmm. and yeah. livestock, beef. Yeah. So if you were to go to the legislature with concerns, you're such, you know, you're such a small part of the yeah. larger economy. Do you even have a voice? That's, I think you you nailed it completely. It's all economic driven. When I look at numbers that I had put together in 2016, you know, corn has a $12 billion economic impact in the state of Nebraska. Cattle are at $11 billion. You know, the ethanol industry, which is corn, is $5 billion. Soybeans, four and a half. We're coming in at $151 million. So we were sold through the legislature and to the legislature as an alternative crop in the mid-'80s when economics were extremely tight and corn wasn't 8 to $10. And it was, let's diversify our economy. And so we were invited to begin a, a grape and wine industry, and, and we did, and we knew that we were in corn country. But when you're number 12 on the list of economic impacts, and uh, you're in 150 million versus 11.6 billion. You know exactly where that's at. Right. Yeah, that's such a shame because I think that the wine industry, in addition to producing a wonderful beverage, you also create a tourism route of economic development. And so I don't know if that's factored into the broader scale, but it should be. Yeah, and I think it is. The challenge to Nebraska is a state of 2 million people. Nebraska is a state that's 500 miles wide, and we've talked a little bit about from east to west. And, you know, it's a beautiful state and it draws a lot of people, but not as many as mountains or Mount Rushmore or and right. tourist places around. Right. Well, I'm curious to know, I don't want to end our conversation without asking you about climate change, because when I talk to farmers, they have reported, especially those who have been on the land for a long time, they'll say, yeah, you know, the rains are coming sooner or later, and it's messed up their planting time. And I wonder, have you noted any kind of climate impact on your wine production? You know, everything seems to cycle. I can't necessarily say that I have seen anything that I haven't witnessed for the last 45 years. I mean, we have you just have cycles. I mean, you're hot and dry and rainy and wet. And Are the rains coming all- sooner or not arriving in the fall, say, when you might expect them? You know, have you noticed any shifts? No, I, I guess I really can't. You okay. know, I, I, I think that, for instance, we had a lot of rain last fall, and we went into the winter really in good shape. But we had a, a nice, open, dry winter. Well, when I was in college in 78, I think it was, let's say, very similar. I mean, I remember 82 degrees in February in, in 1978. It was an open winter, warm temperatures. So has it changed? It's just cycles around. It doesn't seem to be apparent yet. What about water? Do you need to irrigate your grapes? We do from time to time. We, 
it's kind of crazy. It seems like the time that we turn the water on and we water, uh, we'll get a rain in the next few days. So we have the ability, we do drip irrigation. And so we have drip emitters every two to three feet, and we can apply a half a gallon per hour, and we can water accordingly as we need. Sure. Well, as I mentioned to you before our interview, I wanted to make sure that this was your half hour to share with our listeners what it's like to be in the wine production business and what you want people to know about the challenges that you face. I know we covered herbicide drift, and that's that's a tremendous risk for anybody doing specialty crops where commodity crops are being grown. But what else do you want our listeners to know? I think in our industry, our industry continues to grow and the survivors continue to improve. And I think the people that are involved in the industry do it with a passion. And it's a passion for the the earth, a passion for how we treat it. I think that's standard farmer is generally at least been very concerned about their environment around them. Of course, as things change and economies of scale grow, that changes as well. I think that it's important to connect consumers with producers, to understand what's being grown where, what the challenges are, what kinds of solutions we have. You know, every five years, we have another farm bill what would you like to see in terms of farm bill emphasis going forward to help you and other specialty crop producers? Wow. Well, I think they need to look at some of the the old technology that's there, you know, with reference to the old dicamas and and the 2,4-Ds. As you review pesticide complaints, not just in Nebraska, but Ohio, Missouri, Iowa, the two chemicals that we've talked about are always at the top of the list of complaints. I know that they've been useful tools, and as we continue to increase the density of population, that stuff is always in the air, too. Right. So I think maybe they need to be looking at some of that old technology and say, well, what's safe? Is there new science out there? Is there? Are there better ways? Is there better herbicides? And maybe we should just eliminate some of those that have been around since 45 and 58, move on to the new technologies. Do you see any emphasis or interest in organic production in your region? There is. Organic grapes in our area with high humidity is a huge challenge. There are a lot of restrictions there because without some pesticide use, whether for funguses and or uh, it just becomes very challenging. Uh, the things that I've seen pushed haven't been able to be adapted because they really aren't functioning right in our area right now. So lower humidity areas are those would be more suitable, I guess, for uh, less disease. So it would wipe me out, I guess, and move production into an area that's less humid and requires more water application. Sure. Well, unfortunately, we've got to close because we're out of time, but I really appreciate your sharing your view from your landscape and your production challenges. I need to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio was produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Mick McDowell, and he is the producer 
of wine in the Great Plains state of Nebraska. The winery is called Miletta Vista Winery. I will provide a link to that website. And if there's any website, Mick, that you would like to share with our listeners, maybe is there something with the leaf indexing work that you've done? The indexing work that I did, I looked at the University of Washington's work that they have. Okay. Well, we can share that so that other people who are producing wine will be better able to recognize damage and work from there. So thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.